Hi, it's Sophie Pascoe here and you're listening to my podcast, Outside the Lanes. A podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. To take on any challenge successfully, first you need to take care of yourself. As a Westpac ambassador, I've been exploring specific areas of growth to inspire you and I to achieve whatever we set our sights on. This is a podcast series that focuses on key themes that are very personal to me, such as leadership, values, balance, health, and more. I have carefully selected mentors who are successful in their field to have beautiful conversations with. In each and every episode, I will be asking a new interviewee about their learnings, their challenges, their wins, their journey, ultimately getting under the skin of what it takes to be in their lane. In this episode, I am speaking with Hilary Barry, New Zealand's favourite award-winning broadcaster and journalist, and current co-host of TVNZ's Seven Sharp. Known for her upbeat and lively personality on and off screen, Hilary has won her way into many hearts and households across the nation. With a career that spans 28 years and covers major events. In this conversation, we're talking about balance and what this concept means. We talk a lot around public perception and the weight of responsibility that comes with that, as well as showing up as your true, authentic self. As well as these topics, we cover Hillary's unbelievable wit and sense of humour, as well as her advocacy around body positivity and gender equality. Over more recent years, Hillary's wit and sense of humour have been more evident and accessible through her social media channels, where she intentionally aims to challenge criticism of her age and appearance. An advocate for body positivity and gender equality, Hillary's approach to anti-shaming is to humorously clap back to comments that intend to cause shame, by reposting them on her social media accounts, pointing out that nobody should conform to anyone else's ideals. We cover a lot of ground in this chat, and no stone is left unturned. It was a real treat to sit down with Hillary, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Hilary, thank you for coming on Outside the Lanes. Thank you for having me. Let's start off with the early years. What was your first job? How did you get into journalism and into being our mother of the nation? <laughs> well, that's very sweet of you to say. I, I certainly don't think of myself as mother of the nation, although it's a very sweet concept. Well, you've taken over from Judy Bailey, haven't you? <laughs> I mean, were you still, lear- were you learning off Judy Bailey? Oh my goodness. I had never worked with Judy Bailey, but I certainly admired her because she has always been so professional and a wonderful newsreader and has just a lovely aura about her. I think the first time I met her, I was well into my 40s, and she was exactly as I expected she would be, which was kind and warm and just really, really lovely. So, um, Well, you have that aura around oh, you as well, so I, <laughs> I feel that. And oh. it's like this, as soon as you walked into the room, Hillary's a mother. Oh. <laughs> you know? I do mother. You're like our second mother in I New do Zealand. Kind of, I, and I do mother people too. I'm a, you know, they talk about love languages. Well, my love languages are probably, you know, words and also feeding people. I'm a big feeder. So I'm the person who does the baking in the office. Or if someone's looking like they haven't had lunch, I'm making sure they've had something to eat. That's just kind of what I do. But to get back to your earlier question about how I kind of got into it, by accident, actually, And it was a happy accident, but I actually left school and went to university and started in architecture. Now, I'm not entirely sure why I decided that architecture would be the career for me, 
But I suddenly did. And so I went and I did first year architecture and then realised during the course of that that this really wasn't me, mainly because of the fact that you had to do maths and physics. (laughs) And I'm good at neither. And I was always really interested in performance and English and those sorts of subjects. I was definitely an arts, more an arts student. So after a first year architecture, I thought, no, 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 this is absolutely not for me. Failing maths didn't help either. And so I finished off my BA and then I thought, you know what, I actually always really had a hankering to do journalism. So after I got my degree, I went to journalism school in Wellington and I thought, I've absolutely found what I want to do. What I wanted to do was actually radio. And so that was my one ambition was to be a radio journalist. So as I was working through journalism school. We went and did work experience at different places. And I did some work experience as a student at ZB. And unbeknown to me, a guy had set up a little radio station in the Wairarapa, which is about, for those who don't know, it's about an hour out of Wellington, an hour north out of Wellington. And he rang the uh, journalism school and said, look, I need a young journalist, someone who's interested in radio and, you know, someone who's cheap. So anyway, I got tapped on the shoulder and asked whether I'd like to apply for a job at this little radio station in Wairarapa. And I said, oh, that'd be great. So I signed up. I think I was the only one who wanted to give it a go because nobody really wanted to move to Carterton. I don't know why, because it's a beautiful part of the country. So I put my hand up and I thought, no, I'll I'll go and give this a go. And the person who owned the radio station was the one and only Paul Henry, who was relatively unknown at that time. He was probably in his early 30s. I would have been like 21. And he had started this little radio station in the Wairarapa. And he was the morning show host and making his way in the world by being quite entrepreneurial at the time, because most of the radio stations in New Zealand were owned by the government back then. Oh, gosh, I sound so old. Anyway, so I ended up going over there and started working for him in his little radio station. And he was the first person to show me the ropes on how to read the news and how to be a broadcaster. Because as much as you go to journalism school and broadcasting school and all of these places, the best learning that you do is always on the job from people who've been doing it for a while. So he taught me how to read the news and I kind of observed how he broadcast, really. And so I had an incredible learning curve, really, because I I didn't appreciate at the time the talent I was watching. You know what I mean? Like he became a big star a lot later. But in those early years, he was just my boss and my co-worker. But I really had the best start in terms of learning not only how to read the news, the journalism side of things I learned from other people, but how to be an entertainer and a broadcaster I first learned from him. So I'm very, very grateful for that, even though really he only rang up journalism school to get someone cheap. And I was cheap, $19,000. That's what he paid me. He was so tight. I bet you're certainly not cheap now. <laughs> yeah, needless to say, I earn a little bit more than that. <laughs> but you've got to start somewhere, right? You, you know? do. And young people these days, they think, I want to do that big job from the get-go. They want to run before they can walk. Mm. And I always tell the young ones coming through, you know, go and get a job at a little radio station somewhere or, a, you know, a little regional newspaper somewhere. Learn your craft. Make your mistakes there 
Mm. Because if you get launched into a big time career on TVNZ, TV3, Radio New Zealand, all those big broadcasters, you make a big mistake, you're doing it in front of a huge audience and you may not get another chance. Whereas if you go to a smaller place, you can make more mistakes without as many people hearing it. And people are more forgiving, I think. So you would say Paul Henry has been influential on your career. And obviously you still get to work alongside him. I think everyone in the career comes across people who take them under their wing and teach them things that they otherwise wouldn't have learned if there wasn't that connection. And Paul Henry was certainly the first one. Further on in my career, there were other people I looked up to and learned from, names that other people won't know, but probably about half a dozen people over the course of my career that I learned a lot from who saw something in me and wanted to help me improve. You know, sometimes it can be hard hearing that feedback or having your eyes open to something that you're not doing very well, that you thought you were doing well. But when someone comes to you with care and respect and wants to help you, it's always good to keep your ears open and mm. and want to learn more. And even now at the age and stage I am, I welcome the feedback from the people I trust in a professional sense to tell me how I can improve on something. So connection and team is a huge part then, obviously, part of your career. Definitely. And I think that's not unique. It's probably the same for people in any number of careers that you learn and you improve really by being around like-minded people and tossing around ideas and being open to each other's ideas. You've had a lot of jobs in the media. Has there been a standout? I have been very lucky to have lots of different experiences within the one kind of career zone. I would say the most fun I've had has probably been in morning radio. I did a radio show a long time ago with Jeremy Corbett and Kim Adamson on More FM in Auckland. That really was the most fun because they were great entertainers. And for a while, Paul Ego was also, he's on Seven Days, he was also part of that team. And so I would go to work each day and just laugh from 6am until 9am. And I would have turned up and done that job for free. I never told my boss that, obviously. <laughs> but it was that much fun. And you talk about learning from different people. So they were people that I learned a lot from as well in terms of entertaining content, I guess. But I, I love that job. I, I would say in terms of my career, that would have been my favourite job, actually. So how did you balance that? And how do you balance today's professional life with your personal life? Yeah. And you know what? It's not balance. I have learned and done a bit of reading on, on the work-life merge. This is my thinking around work-life balance. I don't think of it by using that word anymore because with technology and the way we're all doing different things in terms of our career, you know, you don't have just a nine to five job anymore. I mean, you look at you, here we are doing this podcast, you, you know, there are lots of different facets to our work lives these days. And so it's really hard for anyone to have that nine to five job where it's family, I work from nine to five, and then it's family. And so I've kind of got to a place where I'm accepting of the work-life merge 
which is that, you know, if my phone rings with an urgent call and there's breaking news and I, I need to be involved with it, I have to drop everything and go. That sometimes I've got to work on the weekends if we've got to shoot a particular story that's happening over a weekend. But I guess what I always keep at the very heart of everything I do is prioritising. And family is always first. Anyone who sits back and goes, oh, you know, women get this label. Oh, she's a career woman. They never talk about men being a career man. He's just a man with a job. Oh, she's a career woman. She puts her career first. No, nobody does that. No one on this earth puts their career before their family. So family always comes first. But given that, the realities of life are that we all need to work in some way, shape or form. And actually, <laughs> I do have to have a job to put food on the table, pay the <laughs> mortgage, all these sorts of things. So I'm at a place where I'm protective about my family time in as much as I'm still flexible if something comes up at work. My family are incredibly supportive, but I have managed to find plenty of time to focus on family and also to work. And it has helped that I married a teacher who had all the school holidays off and was there for the kids before and after school and those sorts of things. So it's probably easier for me to talk about the work-life balance slash merge than a lot of other women who are juggling family and being the primary caregiver and working at the same time. How do you keep a sense of privacy and protection around your family, though? I mean, you are the face of our television and the voice of our what we hear. Yeah. It is hard because you're often asked to have photos taken with your family. I And it's different for everybody. And when I tell you how I have chosen to do things, I'm not in any way judging anybody who hasn't done what I've done. This is just what I felt comfortable with. So I haven't been photographed with my kids and I am happy that at the age they are, they're 18 and 21, that people don't know what they look like and that they walk around with others not knowing that they're my kid. When we're out in public, say it's a Saturday night and people have been drinking and we might have been out for a family dinner, they die of embarrassment when people yell out at me or want to come up and say hi. and They just like dart away. <laughs> They're gone. <laughs> you don't see them for dust. But yeah, I have been quite protective about them. My husband, you know, we have been to functions together, of course, and we get photographed there. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's in a public space. But we tend not to do, he would die too. If he was in a women's mag, he would absolutely die. So uh, <laughs> he he doesn't front for those sorts of stories either. So they have um, relative privacy, I think. You're an advocate for gender equality in the workplace in particular. How did you get into that? I think at my heart, I've always been a pretty ardent feminist. I grew up knowing that I was related to Emmeline Pankhurst, my maiden name was Hilary Pankhurst, and part of our family history was this connection with Emmeline Pankhurst. So even from the time I was a little girl, I was exposed to the story of the suffragettes and how women weren't allowed to vote, and they fought really, really hard to have the same rights as men. And that was something that I think shaped a part of who I am and really drew me towards advocating for women. And 
this is not something that as a young woman you necessarily feel like you're able to do, particularly in the workplace, because you've just arrived, you don't want to cause a scene, you don't want to cause problems, you just want to go with the flow. But now that I am the age I am and I've been around for as long as I am, I do feel like I've earned the right to say what I think, stand up for other women, and in doing so, help younger women coming through to speak up and feel confident in speaking up for themselves. You know, there are lots of things that happen in different workplaces that, you know, still shouldn't be happening. I know the gender pay gap is slowly closing, but there's still a gap. I think it's really tough for women who take time out of their work, particularly in certain professional careers, take time out of their work to go and have children to then return, they're left behind by their male peers who haven't taken time out to have children. And so I just sort of feel like there's a lot of work in that area still to be done to make sure that women aren't penalised for being the ones who have children and stay home with them for a year or two or longer before returning to the workforce. I don't think it should have to spell the end of a woman's career. If she wants it to, then that's absolutely fantastic and that's her choice, but it's having that choice and not feeling like there's no point in going back to work because you've been left so far behind. Then there are other things that happen in workplaces about and have done in the past, and again, it's improving all the time, about opportunities being given to men that aren't given to women. I know when I was at TV3, I definitely felt that because I had young children, I wasn't offered similar opportunities that men of a similar stage in their professional careers were given. And I put it down to benevolent sexism, you know, a boss, a male boss thinking, oh, look, she won't want to do that because she's got kids. She's busy with her kids. No, we won't ask her to do that. All I wanted was the choice. All I wanted was to be asked are you prepared to go and do that? And then I could say, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I have young children. Or, yes, I'd love to do that, you know. <laughs> but I, there were times when I wasn't ever offered an opportunity because maybe it was just sexism, but I like to think better of my boss and think it was benevolent sexism where he was making the decision for me because he didn't want to put me out. But I think we need to be given the opportunity to say yes or no to things. I can completely relate, obviously being a female, but being a Paralympian, being disabled, we are a minority in a majority society. Uh, but I'm in a fortunate enough position like yourself, our careers give us the platform to be able to give a voice for our other fellow woman and other, for me personally, disabled people in New Zealand that, you know, we are equal and we should be classed as equal people. Yeah, and I think that that is a really amazing position to be in, like you, where you go, I do have an audience. And I think social media has been a great help. Social media gets a, a terrible rap, but I think the positive side of that is that you have your own channel to communicate that message as I have as well. And I think that that has been a really valuable tool in standing up and empowering other people. So some people think media these days is... A negative just with how much it's obviously grown, but how much of an impact it has on our younger generation coming through and how much it affects them as a person. What are your thoughts on, on the social media today? I think parts of social media can be quite dangerous, particularly for young people. I think it's easier to have perspective when you're a bit older. 
and to brush negative comments off. I feel for young girls especially, you know, the selfie generation where I'm speaking generally, of course, I know that not all girls are like this, but, you know, there seems to be the selfie generation where they want to look like models and be in amazing locations and it's all about the Instagram pic and how it looks and getting the likes and following all the likes and those sorts of things. That is concerning because, as we know, there's just so much more to life than that sort of stuff. It's such an insular way of looking at the world, an inward way of looking at things rather than looking outwards. So, I, you know, if I was the mother of young girls, I'd be particularly careful over even letting them be on some of those social media platforms because you get thicker skin the older you get. But when you're young, those sorts of nasty comments or waiting for people to like your photos, that can really hurt young people. It's a strange old world. You yourself have been in that position of getting backlash, mm. especially um, lately in the media <laughs> around your cleavage showing, <laughs> uh, which I find absolutely absurd. But, you know, how do you deal with the backlash? Yeah, well, look, I, for the most part, I do just delete negative stuff and block people. I very rarely bite back. Even though the perception is that I do that quite a lot, I honestly don't. But sometimes there'll be a comment and I'll think about it before biting back and I'll just go, you know what, A, it's outlandish and so out of line, but B, I can use my platform to make an example of this particular comment and help other women to say, no, that's not all right. So the cleavage, the shoulders... It has become apparent to me that because I'm 50, one, uh, but in my 50s, that there are different rules on how women dress for certain ages. Now, it's not like I'm turning up on seven sharp in a hot pants and crop top. Although I would, you know, if I'm going to take this argument to its full extent, I would say, who cares if I am? I'm not doing that to anybody. I'm not doing that to myself either. Uh, These thighs were not meant for television. However... When one is dressed demurely in really nice threads that are provided for me by TVNZ and, yes, showing a bit of cleavage or shoulders, if I was 30 and sitting on the couch in those clothes, no one would say a word. But now that I'm 51, that is not appropriate in some people's minds. And that really ticks me off because, you know what, if I'm 75 and rocking an off-the-shoulder top, Who cares? Mm. I mean, really, who cares? Nobody's got the right to tell me what to wear. And it's not even what to wear. It's it's just kind of what parts of my body that I'm allowed to show as a woman of my age. So I do deliberately use some of the outlandish comments to make a point. Although I hasten to add, I'm not trying to shame particular people. Like I'll always black out a photo or black out their name and delete their comment as soon as I've got a screenshot of it so that they're not trolled in return. Because I, you know, I don't want to bully people, but I do like to make an example of some of those comments to make other people feel better. But if you have a job in the public eye, you do attract negative comments because some people are just miserable and it tends to be more about them than you. They're just miserable people who are living sad little lives and they just want to bring you down because they're just desperate to hate someone. So bring it on. Delete, delete, block, block, block. (laughs) (laughs) I think uh, with you, obviously, 
you are in our media's eye all the time. Far too much for my liking. Well, that's where people gain a perception of us. Yeah. How do you deal with people's perception of you? Well, I have this philosophy, right, in terms of negative feedback. It's taken me a while to get to this place because when you're young, you don't your skin is not as thick as it is when you're older. So when you're young, you can't believe that not everyone likes you, especially me. I mean, I grew up, everyone was my friend at school and, you know, I was head girl and I was just jolly joy germ. And then over time doing this job, you realise people just don't like you because they just don't like you. You haven't done anything wrong. They've just decided they don't like you. They've watched you on the TV and that's it. No, don't like her. And you come to realise that it's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with other people. So I have this philosophy, which is that there are only a very small number of people in my life who have earned the right to have an opinion on me. I don't let myself get hurt by the comments of people who are not in this small subset of people. So I'm talking about my husband and kids, a few close work colleagues whose advice I would always listen to in a professional sense, and then a few close friends and wider family, say my brother and mum and stuff like that, who I would listen to in terms of their advice. Anybody else, I consider white noise. And if you keep in mind just that small subset of people, and for me it's probably no more than 10 people, and if we all think about you know, the people who we would truly listen to in terms of their advice and their counsel and what their opinion is of you, then it is very small. But it's also a really liberating thing because if you're only listening to those people in terms of their feedback, you're not going to be hurt by anybody else who's just throwing stuff at you. I feel for sports people like yourself. I honestly do, because everyone's a blooming armchair critic, aren't they? They know how you should have raced that race. Yeah. And they'll come and tell you. They go, well, that was great, Sophie, but really, I I think you should have done this on, you know, or Mm. modified your stroke on that or done a quicker turn there and da-la-la. You know, your immediate reaction is to go, oh, okay, right. And you take it on board and you might still think they're plonkers, but you've given them power by even listening and processing what they had to say. So they don't deserve to have the power because they don't know what the training was like, what injury you might be carrying, what your actual plan was for that particular race. They have no idea. And, you know, rugby players, the people that they would be hit by in terms of, oh, you should have done that in this game and you should have done that and da-la-la-la, this person doesn't know the game plan that the coach gave them before the game. And so... If you take out that white noise and all of those people throwing their unwanted advice at you and just focus on the small group of people that you have in your inner circle whose advice you need and you seek and you will listen to, then I guarantee for everybody it will be a really liberating experience. Mm, I think that's one of the hardest parts. Like you say, being a sports person, we do deal with a lot of criticism. Yeah. We deal with having to hold an image and that can be challenging. Mm. And it is really hard when we do get those messages and the media may write something about us that is just completely false. Yeah. And how do we then go about changing that false headline? That's really, really tough. I'm interested in what you say about you've got an image. 
I'm interested in this side of things too. So tell me yeah. about your perception of that. I believe I have an image that I'm upholding, you know, people with disabilities in New Zealand, that I can make a change and an impact and a positive one to become equal yeah. and equal counterparts with my able-bodied sports people. And it's a big weight to carry. It is, because you're representing a whole community. Yeah, but I choose to do that. And actually, that is, and it has been for a very long time, my why. So my why has been to do it for others. It's never really been to do it for myself. And that's only changed over the past few years as I've got older and wiser and become more knowledgeable in my sport and how much impact and power I have in a nation. But actually realising how much I need to actually do this for myself. Uh, but a lot of that comes from my accident. That I was two and a half. I never dealt with my accident like I'm dealing with it today. The trauma stays with you, but you're two. So you grow up not thinking you went through any trauma, that you grew up being no different to anybody else uh, other than you, you know, you may put your leg on, <laughs> take it off. But it never stopped me from being just like any of my other friends. Until today's society where you do see that actually having a disability can impact you and impact how you move through society. I was in a very fortunate position that swimming became a successful platform for me. I was good at it, I trained hard at it, and I worked hard at it. And I want to be able to show that and give that to other people with disabilities that you can still go out and achieve whatever you want to do, whether it be sport, whether it be an academic or anything, that you have a place in this society and that we are equal to one another. You know, nobody knows everyone's story. I find that quite liberating today that I get to now work and deal with the trauma I went through that is actually impacting me more today yeah. than it did as a younger child. That's incredible. It completely makes sense because as a child, you live through it, especially at that age, such a young age, and then you are so much more, I guess, in touch with your feelings and, yeah, you get to that age where you process those sorts of thoughts and feelings so much better. But media's had a huge impact on that as well, the growth of media. And like you say, kids nowadays are looking what we should be like, what they should be like, who they should look like. Mm. And there's no look and I think we need to get past this image of, oh, I want to be the next Sophie Pascoe. No, you go and be the next person. This you go and so, be the next you. I 100% agree. I get this as well. Um, <laughs> young people coming up to me or writing to me going, I want to be you. And they use those words, I want to be you. And it breaks my heart. No, you don't. You want to be you. Mm. You might want a job in the media, you might want to be a great swimmer, but you want to be you. But you can absolutely take some traits and values and how they perform mm. and put that into your own usage and use that to be the next you. Yeah. And I think for me, that's where, back to the image, I do want to create this image that, you know, I came from a really grounded, humble family who treated me no differently 
to my elder sister or anybody else. I was very fortunate enough to not be bullied because I was good at something. And when you're good at something, your disability then becomes overshadowed. But as time goes on, you start to notice your disability because other people may have a disability or have been through something similar, and media changes that because you should look like mm. this. The perfect, yeah. The perfect person. Life's not perfect. No. And my image and perception I want to give to people is that my life isn't perfect. I go through ups and downs on my through my career and through my life. The fact that I'm still, you know, dealing with this trauma now and today more than ever is really interesting to me because now I can start sharing that and give a platform that, you know what, yes, there are going to be challenging times along the way being disabled and people giving a perception mm. of what you should be and what your image should look like. I just want to be honest. Mm. And I hope that I am in my imagery. Yeah. Uh, but social media does change that because we do tend to only share the positive things yeah. in our life. We don't share the times when I'm at home absolutely bawling my eyes out. You know, you're not going to take a selfie and go, No. Today is just an and absolute yet, crap day. You know what? <laughs> you should. We all should. You're absolutely right. Mm. When you talk about dealing with the trauma and <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't want to take over the podcast, changed. <laughs> but I don't want to take over the podcast, but I know people listening will want to know more and the, mm-hmm. I guess the person who's used to asking the questions. I I've, want to know more. Like as an adult, as Sophie Pascoe today, what are you grieving specifically? You know what? It's not grief. I'm not sad or... I'm not grieving that I lost my leg because I still to this day, and I've always said it, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me because it's created so many opportunities for me. But those opportunities have been dictated by my leg. So that's what I'm dealing with more so today. I today, as an adult, am understanding why I've made the choices I have in my career. And maybe that's the possibility of the question of, well, what if or who would I have been? But I absolutely love who I am today. And I think we don't give ourselves enough gratitude because we're so hard and we critique ourselves so much. I try and race the perfect race. I still have not raced the perfect race after 15 medals. Really? But It's funny how a disability comes back in a cycle or your upbringing and how you grew up and I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing. My family have made me into who I am. They've challenged me to get the best out of me. I've worked bloody hard and they've worked hard as well and supported me and it's taken a team to get me where I am today. But the decisions I've made have come from my accident. It's not grief again, mm. and I really want to put yeah, that out there no, because I, I just associate yeah. trauma with grief, so that's why. And I we sort do, of thought. we do completely do that. But I would say the trauma side of it for me has been a liberating learning curve right now, mm. and it's helping me as a person. Yeah, and it's helping me help others. So actually, it's been an an interesting journey yeah. that my disability and my accident 
has made me into who I am. So when I do say it's the best thing that ever happened to me, it's because I made a positive out of what a lot of people would class as a negative. But all my decisions have been based on my accident because it's adversity. It's an incredible thing hearing you say that, and I've heard it from others who are disabled too, that it was the best thing that happened to them. And as an able-bodied person, I just can't imagine feeling that way. And I just, I think it's incredible that it's not just you I've heard it from, that this incredibly difficult, just terrible thing happened to you and that you look back and you go, actually, it was the best thing that happened to me. Mm. It blows my mind. One of the biggest stories that I can share that's, you know, no one can take this moment away from me is that my accident involved my father. So hard situation back then. And I didn't grow up understanding that situation because I was so young. Now, as I've got older and wiser and more knowledgeable, I understand what it possibly could be like to be a mother or a father that has been part of an accident with their child. It's unbearable to think what he went through Mm. and the image he lives with every day. But my why has been to change that image that he lives with every day, that he now gets to travel the world and watch me swim. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) But I get to stand up on that podium. And in Beijing, when I won my first gold, I just looked at him and it was literally this moment where it took us back to the accident. And we never talked about the accident. (laughs) We never did. It was kind of like this, um, you got on with life. Yeah. I was, no, I was no different to my sister, Becky. Yeah. For someone in that era to feel what he did, he was a typical Kiwi hard-ass man. Mm. <laughs> he shed a tear. And that's an emotion that, and an image that I got to change because of what happened. So, my God. <laughs> what a moment. I get to live with that yeah. every day that I got to change an image that he lives with. What a gift for him. So that's what I mean by my image. I want to be able to change that for others. But look, I I know it's, it's the trust. It's the face of trust. And that's the image I want to create in a face of integrity Mm. and a face of passion and love and humor. And that's exactly what you have. You know, it's authenticity, isn't it? I mean, that's what we all want to live and it doesn't matter whether you have, a, you know, a public-facing job or you're in the storeroom out back of a giant retailer. We all want to be our authentic selves. Mm. We don't want to try and be this picture-perfect person from Instagram. None of our lives is perfect. We just want to be our authentic selves. And you live your best life when you are, you know, mm. when you're just being yourself. When I race... On the world stage, I race my best when I'm at my most confident self. So we need to really praise that on people a lot more. And like you say, you use the people around you, the trustworthy ones. It's those people you seek help from. It's those people you seek love from. And those are the people that keep us grounded. But those are the people that we can use our face value and our trusting words 
and connection to 100%. be able to be the best of ourselves. 100%. And you mentioned um, keeping your feet on the ground. That's one of their best roles, actually, because it would be relatively easy not to keep your feet on the ground, quite frankly, doing the sort of work that we probably do, because people are very, very lovely, but you could really get a big head. <laughs> and if you keep that small subset of people on board, by God, you're not going to get a big head around there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Get off your high horse. <laughs> How do you deal with people who have a, an ego in the media? Because obviously... Oh, I keep a wide berth <laughs> from them. I tell you what, everyone listening knows who those people are. Yeah. They're in a whole nother world on their own. I think because I've been around for such a long time, you've seen those people who have kept their feet on the ground and those people who haven't, and you just go, oh, dear, okay. See you at the old folks' home. We'll see how you're going then. <laughs> <laughs> you've burnt all your bridges. You've got no friends. You've got no interests because you were your job. It's important to not just be your job. I am a wife and a mum and a friend and a, a baker and, you know, someone who loves going for walks and all these other parts of my life. I'm not defined by my job. Mm. I think a lot of people who don't know me, they can only define me by, by my job, but I'm a lot more multifaceted than that. Mm. Well, the image that I have of you is that you are a mother and I feel that vibe as soon as you walk <laughs> through the door and you're trusting. I mean, you're someone who reads the news to us, something that can be breaking any minute through traumatic disasters, right through to some beautiful stories that we share within the community and that you get to share to us. What part of the journalism side do you like the most? Is it those breaking stories well, or is it the community? Yeah, look, it's... They are both very different aspects of my work. I have always loved the buzz of a breaking news story. When you're in a newsroom, it's very hard to explain, but there's a this sort of team ethos that really just comes to the fore where everybody's just focused on what's happened, what do we know, you know, allocating people to make certain calls, getting people on air shooting pictures, getting those pictures to air, being responsible about what we're telling people, not frightening people, not alarming people, but just telling them the facts, telling them what's happened, what we know for sure. And there's an incredible weight of responsibility when you're thrust into those situations. I'm thinking particularly of, you know, the Christchurch earthquake, and we've just, you know, marked the 10-year anniversary of that, and I can't believe it was 10 years ago. Um, the mosque attacks, and these these were terrible moments in our collective history. And as a journalist and as a broadcaster, you're thrust on air. And we talk a lot in news about breaking news. You know, everybody's got breaking news and da 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 And then there's this other aspect of our jobs, if you're on the front line, of breaking the news to people. So you know that people are tuning into their televisions and hearing this terrible news from you for the first time. The weight of that responsibility is huge and can be quite overwhelming. And, oh, gosh, it's because we we're get we talking heart to heart. I'm such a crier. But you do feel it. And, you know, when I'm on air and in those situations, 
I do have moments of crying on air and I can't not because these terrible things have happened and I'm a Kiwi and I'm broadcasting to other Kiwis and it's like we're holding each other's hands and going, we can't believe this has happened and, you know, why did it happen? And you're sort of reassuring people that, you know, in terms of the mosque attack, they've got the offender, they don't think there's anybody else out there, you know focusing your attention on on the victims and thinking of them and you know making sure in those first few hours too this all this terrible stuff about the gunman that you don't broadcast that you know he had published a manifesto that was easily available and just making that decision on the spot we are not talking about that we are focused solely on the victims they are what the story is about so, yeah, you do feel an incredible weight of responsibility. And and during the Christchurch earthquake as well, I mean, I remember being on air for about eight or nine hours and it was just heartbreaking seeing these pictures coming in. And we had, I remember so clearly, even though it was 10 years ago, one particular woman calling the newsroom and us talking to her on air. She was trapped in a collapsed building, under a desk, and she couldn't get through to 111. So she called us because she wanted the rescuers to know where she was. Now, she was fine. I hasten to add, I need to tell you that part of the story first. But we are talking to her and saying, we've told them where you are. They are coming for you. Don't move. Stay where you are. You know, are you okay? Have you injured anything? She hadn't. But again, that weight of responsibility. Here's someone who's reaching out to us live on air because she can't get through on 111. I will never forget that as long as I live. Mm. I really won't. So anyway, to get, back, <laughs> to get back to your original question, even though those are the most traumatic things to go to as a broadcaster and there's that incredible weight of responsibility, when you do a good job of it, it's the most rewarding thing in the world. Mm. It well, really it's like is. Being on the other side, you know, we remember exactly where we were when occasions like that happen, whether it be traumatic or whether it be beautiful. You remember. Yeah. And you don't forget those moments of where you were and what you heard and what you saw. And um, I think that's why it's very important to have people like you and your fellow broadcasters the people that we trust, because we've gained trust through seeing you on a TV, through hearing you through the radio. It's almost reassurance that it's going to be okay, that you're telling us it's going to be okay, or you're celebrating a momentous victory. That's what well, you and know. What, sharing that with if us. If I can have done that for people, then that will be the greatest legacy I leave behind. I will be proud of that. If people felt that I did reassure them, no matter what it was, whether it was a fun story or a sad story, that feels pretty good to have been able to do that. Do you have a why? I think my why is so multifaceted because part of my why is having fun and making people feel happy. In everything I do, I always like to make people feel better. And I'm constantly reminded of this wonderful quote of Maya Angelou's, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And my kind of ethos and why, I guess, is to make people feel good. I find joy in 
feeding people and being that high buzz jazz hands person and having fun and that's at the core of kind of who I am. So, yeah, making people feel better and making their day better is probably my why. And and yet that manifests itself in lots of different ways. So there must be days, though, that you don't feel good, yeah. that it is hard. And how do you get up to be able to obviously share to the nation our news? Well, I'm, oh, I'm open and honest about not feeling it sometimes. And then other times you realise that you do just have to fake it, particularly if you're on air, because if I'm, I'm not feeling it, I can't go on air at 7 o'clock and go... Oh, I've had a terrible day because (laughs) (laughs) nobody wants to tune into that. So I'm cognizant of the fact that half a million people are not feeling the same vibe I'm feeling, so I've just got to bring it. Yeah. Funnily, though, sometimes when you have days like that where you just go, oh, I'm having a terrible day and, you know, the shit's at the fan and it's just, uh, I just want to go and lie down and just not come out for a couple of days. And you go on air and you put on a happy face, chuck on some lippy and an off-the-shoulder top, <laughs> and you fake it for half an hour, and you actually go, I do feel better. It's quite an interesting life lesson that sometimes, even when you're feeling rubbish and you just want to retreat, if you kind of, not that I'm... <laughs> We've just been talking it. about living your authentic <laughs> life, and here I am going, you should fake it. But, you know, once in a while, slapping on some lippy, a pair of heels putting on your happy face and just burying it for half an hour mm. gives you a little bit of a boost. It's not going to work long term, oh, obviously. I mean, <laughs> look, I can say that I've been in the exact same position. You know, long, long evenings where you're at awards nights and, mm. you know, you've got training the next morning. And oh, yeah. It's hard you've to be able to, there. you know, you've put a bright face on, <laughs> dressed up to the nines, and then you've got to come back and, and train in the morning when you know you've probably only had about four or five hours oh, sleep. Yeah. Because I've I've been doing my job of networking with everybody else mm-hmm. and making them feel good. But actually it makes me feel good that I've made them feel good. Yes, so that's as, true. That's very as true. As long as it's beneficial in both both parties. Yeah, it's a two-way street. <laughs> Um, media has evolved over time. In particular, we talk about how we express media, whether it be just in the paper back in the day to, you know, being on radio now, being podcasts mm-hmm. um, and on TV. Do you have a favourite? I do love radio. There's something about radio or, you know, this sort mm. of arrangement where there aren't any cameras. I think you get... A deeper quality of conversation because people are less aware of themselves. As soon as there's a camera there, we're all aware of the camera, aren't we? So we're just a little bit more stilted. Even me, as you know, I've been on camera so often, but I still am aware of it. So I kind of like the freedom of just a couple of microphones in a studio or in a podcast situation. In terms of conversations, I think you get great conversations. Having said that, I do love television for those gorgeous warm moments with people, you know, that raw excitement. Yeah. Nothing beats seeing, like last night we had a story on a kid who was reunited with a soft toy that had been lost and, you know, seeing him see his soft toy, it was such a little story, but it was just so gorgeous seeing his little chubby face and reunited with his little lost bunny. Moments like that. And when you surprise people, I I love those stories on air when we surprise people and, you know, give them a car or, you know, (laughs) those moments are special too. Being on live TV or live radio comes with 
mistakes, surely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lots of mistakes. What, what has been your biggest mistake? Oh, just getting the giggles at the wrong moment. It's just, you know, I'm a very emotive person, as is evidenced by our podcast so far. You know, my emotions are only ever just below the surface, whether that's laughing uncontrollably or having a cry. I will cry watching advertisements on TV. You know, some of those heartfelt ads that they play on the TV, I'll get teared up and my kids just take the absolute mick out of me. But my most embarrassing moment would have been having terrible giggles through a story on a suicide bomber. Oh, and it was so inappropriate. And it... I was not laughing at that story, obviously. It's a terrible story. I was laughing at something else that had happened in studio, but I couldn't stop. I was out of control. And I was actually sitting at the desk, and it's, we were live on air, and I was digging my fingernails into my legs to try and hurt myself. This is terrible, to try and stop myself from laughing. I was trying to think of terrible things that had happened in my life, sad things, to get me to stop laughing, and I just couldn't. It was terrible. And, you know, people have clipped it up since, and it's gone <laughs> viral and ended up all over the world, that particular clip. And it's years old, and it keeps cropping up from time to time. Even though people could see that I wasn't meant to be laughing, it still will be my most embarrassing moment. <laughs> so embarrassing. Well, look, I think you've redeemed yourself. <laughs> thank and I haven't seen the clip, so oh, thank now I'm absolutely going to go Google it. But... A big story of 2020 and 2019 has been the COVID-19 outbreak. How has that affected you and how has it affected the media mm. side of things? Well, amazingly, we thought it would really, really hurt our business, but it hasn't because, like, people comfort ate. They comfort viewed. So they tuned back into the 6 o'clock news and the 7 o'clock shows and stuff like that. So in a commercial sense, it didn't hurt us. I think in a personal sense and in a content sense, particularly for our show, we realised that we needed to be the ones to cheer people up because there was so much to be afraid of, a lot of anxiety out there over what was happening with COVID. And we weren't going to sugarcoat it by any means, and we weren't going to tell people lies and make it seem like it was better than it was. But we were very careful about the sort of topics that we talked about, and we tried to focus on great Kiwis doing great things despite the obstacles. And I think that that really resonated with people. So I think we learned a valuable lesson in what people needed during that time, mm. um, because they would have the news out between six and seven to be you know, really, really depressed at the world. And then at seven, we tried to bring them other content that would make them feel hopeful about the road ahead. I mean, really, you were an essential service. <laughs> well, you the were... funny thing is, we were deemed an essential service, and I have joked about this because I wouldn't have thought that we were. But we, <laughs> as it turns out, I can see that we did help a little bit. But, um, yeah, <laughs> we weren't the essential service like the supermarket workers were who were actually putting their lives mm. on the line, particularly in those early days. My gosh, I have so much respect for them. They were turning up to work each day not knowing how many people had COVID or how widespread in the community it was. And we were just turning up and, you know, sitting on a couch in the studio. But it was actually 
quite good to have a job to go through during that time, to have an escape. As much as I love my family, it was rather nice to be able to say, okay, bye. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mum's off to work. Too much lockdown. (laughs) exactly. You boys enjoy yourselves. Yeah. Well, I get a sense of your personality shows through how you show yourself on TV and you show that on your Instagram and you came up with Formal Friday. (laughs) (laughs) We had a bit of fun. (laughs) I mean, how much of your personality that you show on the media and the coverage that you show us really shows in your real life? Yeah, so I mean, I am, you know, we, we talked about authenticity. What you see of me is exactly like I am, really. I mean, I can absolutely feel yeah, that. So. It's, um, <laughs> it's all just one. That's me through and through. I am, you know, you talked about your why. It's funny. I've, I've never been asked that question before. Thank you for asking it of me because I've never really thought very deeply about it. But it is. It is. My why is to make people feel good. And so isn't it funny that formal Friday and getting dressed up in a tiara and baking I mean, there I was. I wasn't analysing what my why is. I was just living it. You were a trendsetter. (laughs) (laughs) You had everyone dressing up. Hashtag formal Friday. I I sensed that it resonated with people, and it was funny. I only did it as a one-off, which is a bit of a joke to start with. Contradicting in terms of people giving you flack about what you're wearing, but yet you've now started a trend. And look, I think most generally the feedback is very positive. There are only a few trolls. I did that first formal Friday and got dressed up and baked. And then people were, you know, sending me so many messages going, please, what can we do it again this Friday? Can we do it? And it's like, okay, if this is helping people, let's do it. So, is my gosh, anything... it took a lot of planning. I tell you, it actually became <laughs> a bit of a millstone oh. because I was having to think about what am I going to wear and I'd have to get up bright and early and put on all my hair and makeup and get the ingredients for the baking. You don't have to tell me about content. Oh, I mean, content creation Ooh, takes ta- a lot of it time. It takes time. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there any content that you took while in lockdown, you know, a trend from someone or mm-hmm. did you pick up doing something else? Okay, so I else? didn't make any sourdough bread. The things I was taking on board were mainly around food. I was out of control. Somebody was doing a very good job, and I feel bad because I can't remember who they were or what platform it was, of letting us all know of the sorts of caterers who cater to restaurants and things who were really struggling. And so I was doing my best to buy, you know, huge catering packs of dumplings and this and meat packs and da 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 all from these different suppliers to restaurants to try and keep them in business over COVID. So that was kind of my focus. I haven't done, well, they're back in business now because the restaurants are open. And I think it's just as well because we did a lot of eating in the Barry household, a lot of eating. A lot of my COVID time was spent in and around food. (laughs) (laughs) Same. I I worked very hard on losing it afterwards. Yeah. I think a lot of people were. I want to ask if there was a piece of advice you would give to somebody wanting to get into the media industry, what would that piece of advice be? My piece of advice would be baby steps. Young people especially focus on the end goal and forget that actually the end goal will take years and years and years to reach and baby steps upon baby steps upon baby steps. So 
by all means, have a goal. Be the next broadcaster of a, a major news show. Be that, have that goal. But just remember, there are lots, so many baby steps before you get there. And don't be discouraged and enjoy each step. We're all on a journey of some sort and you've got to enjoy every step of that journey and make the most of it. You know, I think back to where we started in our conversation about that little job I got at a radio station in Carterton. Well, I enjoyed that part of the journey. I loved the people I work with. I learned so much. I immersed myself in the local community, joined the local amateur theatrical society and was in the, you know, cabaret show and stuff like that. At every step that you make on the journey, whether it's a personal journey or a work journey, make the most of every situation. Mm. Even if your end goal is something quite different, give each step. Would you say energy. putting yourself out there and grabbing those opportunities as well? Yes, because I think it's so easy to go, you know, if I think of myself, I went to journalism school in Wellington, it would have been very easy for me to go, oh, I really don't want to move to a small town. I'd really rather go to Auckland mm. or, you know, Christchurch or stay in Wellington. So being up for the challenge of doing something different, scare yourself a bit, you know, do a podcast, do <laughs> yes, it, whatever exactly. it may be. Do you know what I mean? Do stuff that scares you. I still do stuff that scares me. And, and I don't mean, you know, in a bungee jump, adrenaline junkie kind of thing, because there's no way I do that sort of stuff. But I get nervous standing up in front of a crowd and public speaking, but I do it because I know it's good for me and I know that I've got something to share with people. So, yeah, take the opportunities that come along. Who has been the best interview that you've had? There is actually only one, Oprah. Yeah. Fair enough. Oh, <laughs> I just, no one else will compare. She was amazing mm. and warm and generous. And even though I probably asked her the same question she'd been asked a million times before, she made it seem like it was such a great question. She was just a very lovely, genuine, authentic person. Mm -hmm. And this is what I've found over the years as well. The super A-listers like an Oprah or a Jane Fonda or I'm trying to think of some of the other people, oh, Hillary Clinton, even though she's a politician. The amazing said, thing already that you're saying is these are all females. Oh, actually, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I never even thought about it. I am drawn to strong women. There's the feminist in me. Isn't that funny? But... Your super A-listers like that are such warm, generous, and authentic people. And then you interview people who are kind of a couple of pegs down, and they're the ones who aren't very authentic. And you kind of go, isn't this interesting? The more successful people are authentic. Wow. Yeah. Hillary, I'm going to ask you one last question. Who are you outside of Hillary Barry? one of New Zealand's most loved and treated journalists and television personalities and our new mother of the nation. <laughs> I am a pretty ordinary suburban wife and mother of two who has a very public job and who is blessed to have a job where she meets incredible people doing amazing things. And I feel very privileged to have that job and... Now that I've discovered my why after talking to you, if I can make people feel better in their day-to-day -day lives, then that's a great legacy to have. Well, you certainly have created a, 
amazing legacy. I love seeing you on TV. I love hearing your voice. You feed us warmth and kindness and it's very much appreciated. Well, I appreciate you too. And it's been so lovely to talk to you today. It really has. Oh, we could go on for Thank hours. You. I know. <laughs> we really could. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's been a pleasure and very, very scary. <laughs> I I've hope been not. shaking the no, whole time no, because no, I've no. been like, oh, I'm interviewing the most prestigious media woman. Not <laughs> like, at all. You did a wonderful job. Thank you. Um, but I, you know, I do agree with you that we have to go outside of our comfort zone. And it's been good. And I've got to meet amazing people through what I get to do, which is pretty incredible. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, love it. It's a great life. It's a great life that we're able to give back. Thank you for listening to Outside the Lanes, a podcast proudly brought to you by Westpac New Zealand and produced by Raw Collective. I hope you have enjoyed this episode and if you did, I would appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe to Outside the Lanes podcast. It helps other people know that it exists. Thank you again to my wonderful guests. Until next time.